Welcome to Vancouver Vineyard Church. My name is Marshall, and uh, I'm uh, one of the pastors here at the church, and we're really glad that you're with us. Um, if, you, if you're new, um, we're just so thankful that you're coming and, and visiting and, and seeing what God is doing here in this church. And to all of my friends who are out uh, online, um, we miss you. We hope that you're having an awesome day today, and I'm really hoping that you're streaming from someplace beautiful. In fact, I know that some people are streaming from, like, the beach and stuff. So enjoy that. Uh, we're here in the building, and God is here, so that's great. Um, we are part of a, a movement that's called The Vineyard, and it's a, a, a movement that's been around since uh, the late 1970s. It started kind of down in Southern California, and, uh, and it just rapidly spread through the 80s, 90s, 2000s. Um, to now there's thousands of churches, vineyard churches, uh, across the world um, but we have some really cool distinctives that make us who we are. And one of them is that we really do believe in um, just the, the, the presence of God is here to do things like healing and to set people free. So this morning during worship, Lane got up and she shared uh, what we call a word of knowledge, just a, uh, an impression from the Spirit that he wanted to do something specific in healing during our worship time. Um, and so I want to just make some space right now uh, to be able to, to follow up on that. Uh, was there anybody here that felt like during, uh, when, when she gave that word, that that was for you, that you felt like, yeah, I need healing um, in my body or my emotions? You want to put your hand up kind of high real quick for us? So kind of throughout the room, a lot of people. So God was doing something really cool there. And, and here's the thing that I love about the vineyard. It was started by a guy named John Wimber, or not started, but he was kind of the catalyst that, that really took the, the movement forward. And, and he's known for doing all kinds of quirky things that you would never do in church world. And one of them was that, uh, you know, you'd, you'd bring the sermon to this, like, climax, and everybody's all ready, you know, to do ministry time and enter in the presence of God. And he would say, okay, great, stop. Everybody go grab a cup of coffee, take a, fi a five-minute break, you know. And everybody would disappear, and it would be like, oh, my gosh, you just quenched the momentum of the Holy Spirit. And his whole thing was like, no, no, God, God we'll come back, and we'll do it again. So... We just quench the spirit by having a break and dismissing our kids downstairs. And I want to follow up and not pass by the moment that we just had. So if you, if you needed healing, one more time, go ahead and put your hand up real quick. Okay, so we have them. Everybody look around and see somebody here in the room. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for them real quick. And I want each of you to grab a face in your mind. And throughout this, the rest of the sermon, uh, I want you to, uh, from time to time, uh, pray for them, okay? So uh, let's pray, and then we're just going to keep checking in during the sermon. So Holy Spirit, we just thank you so much that you are in this place, that you do stuff in our hearts, and that you do stuff in our bodies, and you do stuff in our emotions. And so right now, Spirit of God, we just ask that you would fill each person here with your presence and your power. And we pray for those right now, specifically who are feeling uh, like they need physical healing. Let day, today be the day of breakthrough in the name of Jesus. So God, as we speak, we just ask for you to heal. We command bodies to align themselves with the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So we'll check in in a few minutes. 
This morning, we're continuing a series that last week we started, uh, Pastor Jace kicked us off, um, and we are wanting to spend several weeks this spring uh, reflecting in the Psalms. This was a a series that that God kind of inspired on Jace's heart, and we were able to kind of build a a framework around. And what we're trying to do during the spring is not to pick out specific Psalms and then, you know, break them apart and exegete them out and get, and, you know, really... Uh, derive like clear theology from them. We actually just want to experience these psalms. We want to reflect in them and we want to use them to learn how we can pray and how we can express ourselves to God by listening to the way that the psalmists, these ancient poets, express themselves to God. And there is no better place for that than right here in the psalms. The psalms are a, a genre of literature in the Bible that are it's basically ancient Hebrew poetry. They're the worship songs that were sung by God's people for thousands of years. And these songs, if you read through the entire book, you'll notice that they span the entire range of different human experiences and emotions. The Psalms are celebratory, you know, calling for you to grab a, a, a harp or a tambourine and to make glad noise to the Lord. And they're also mournful and somber. They express feelings of doubt and feelings of delight, of fear, of love, of security, of scarcity, of confusion, of desire. And that these psalms, they have formative power for us today as we learn to pray from the book. I love how Jace defined these poems. He said that they are word art that mess you up. It's like the, the best way to describe the genre of the Psalms. Word art that messes you up. That's exactly what you should expect when you dive into the Psalms. And after the year that we have been through, I think that we need to take some time and reorient our heart and address some of the lasting residual stuff that is lingering in us um, you know, from everything that we've just experienced. We need to confront wounds But we also need to address things like addictions and disappointments and attitudes and beliefs that have grown under the surface uh, for the last year. And we need to do that by learning how to pray from the psalm. So that's the aim of this series for the next uh, several weeks. Because most of us have a desire to be able to pray, but we often struggle with the words, especially when we don't really understand what's happening on the interior of our heart. And this ancient poetry, it gives us words to be able to say, to speak the deep things that are happening. Now, have any of you ever, like, spent a season of your life abroad, or maybe just in a different culture, like down in the South or something like that? And then um, after you've been, you know, away in another culture for a time, you come back home to what is normal, and you discover that these little mannerisms, these little affectations have kind of gotten into the way that you talk, and then people point it out and make fun of you, and you know you can't. Um, when I was uh, when I was in my early twenties, I, I spent a, a season of my life down in New Zealand, and um, and I was interning at a church down there. So I was you know in a new culture, and I was in a new church culture, and I was learning how to pray by being in a prayer room uh, for like thirty hours a week. And I had never spent more than probably like ten or fifteen minutes in prayer before that. And so uh, you know I started to learn how to do it. And when I got home after, after that season, my family and I, we went out to dinner, and somebody asked me to pray a blessing over the meal. 
And so, you know, man, I'm ready to pray. I'll go for it. And so I start praying, and uh, after like a minute of prayer, my sister starts laughing, and then she looks at me and she says, are you kidding me? And I was like, what? what? What's wrong? And she was like, what is that ridiculous accent that you're praying with? I only spoke with an accent when I prayed. I'd be like, Lord, what, what, Lord, you know? Um, and... And, and that is essentially, that, is, that, that, was my, that was my experience. I learned how to pray from a bunch of Pentecostal Kiwis, and I picked up more than just their language. I picked up their accent. And so when we learn to pray from the Psalms, we are, in a sense, hoping to pick up the prayer language of God's people. We are hoping for the flavor of this ancient poetry to sort of get into the way that we express ourselves to God and how we relate to him. Because you see, the Christian life is more than just having proper theology or good moral living that's occasionally punctuated by emotional, you know, euphoric experiences. The Christian life is about so much more than that. It's about relationship with God. And because this is a relationship, it will carry all of the emotions that an intimate friendship uh, is accompanied by. We will all go through seasons where we experience doubt and confusion and joy and intimacy and fear and everything else. And the language of this book carries us deeper into the heart of God during those seasons. I love how Brennan Manning puts it in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. He said, when I get honest, I admit I am a bundle of paradoxes. I believe and I doubt, I hope and get discouraged, I love and I hate, I feel bad about feeling good, I feel guilty about not feeling guilty, I am trusting and suspicious, I am honest and I still play games. Aristotle said I am a rational animal, I say I am an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. (laughs) To live by grace means to acknowledge my whole life story, the light side and the dark, In admitting my shadow side, I learn who I am and what God's grace means. As Thomas Merton put it, a saint is not someone who is good, but who experiences the goodness of God. That's the Christian life. And that is what we are essentially trying to do when we encounter the Psalms. You see, you were not created to perform proper theology and steady emotions before God. You were created to encounter his love and to live in relationship with him. And so if you have a Bible, we want to explore one aspect of that this morning in Psalm 63. Go ahead and open it up to Psalm 63, one of my favorite Psalms in the entire book. And today we want to look at the Psalm and draw from it the language of desire or of longing. All right, so hopefully you're getting there. Psalm 63, I'm reading from the NIV. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. 
They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this psalm and for the language of King David leading our hearts deeper into your heart. And so we ask, God, that you would impart some of these words into our souls, into our spirit, and that you would equip us, God, so that tomorrow we can long for you uh, more fully. We love you, Jesus. Amen. When I come to a psalm like Psalm 63, uh, you know, something happens inside of my heart. Like, I'm, I'm initially just very inspired. It is beautiful. It's language that communicates something that resonates at, like, a deep level um, in, in my soul. Um, and at the same time, as soon as I start to pray the psalm out loud, I start to say the words, my logical brain butts in and confronts these words and says, none of these words ring true to my actual lived experience. Like, how can I say that my whole being longs for God, thirsts for God like I'm in a desert and I'm dying of thirst? When do I meditate on the beauty and the goodness of God all through the watches of the night? Like, if I'm honest, the things that keep me up at night are not God's beauty. It's usually all the anxiety. I can, bar- I can barely even hold my attention on God during church. How can I give up sleep for it? Am I really satisfied by God the same way that I am when I eat a steak and have a glass of red wine? This is all crazy language. It feels hyperbolic. It feels like it's just way too over the top. Like, who actually feels this way? And throughout the the Psalms of David, we see that he always speaks in these extreme terms that are so over the top. All right, that was 10 minutes. How are we doing? Is anybody feeling anything different in their body? Anybody that we've been praying for? Anything happening right now? Somebody who got prayed for, can you give me a hint as to if, if anything's happening in your body? No? You have more movement in your arm? Yeah. All right. Good. Okay. So again, if you need healing, put your hand up. Okay. Look around, guys. We're going to keep praying for them. In Jesus' name, be healed. Let's keep preaching, and you keep praying. We'll check back in in 10 minutes. David is so over the top, isn't he? Now, sometimes when we talk about living this life of devotion to Jesus, we can slip into a form of emotional legalism. Like, legalism is the thing that creeps in when we put expectations on usually other people of what their moral character or their actions ought to be like. Um, but, uh, but legalism can, can be even more insidious when it gets into sort of rules and expectations that we heap on each other about how you're supposed to feel if you're truly a Christian. And the truth is, the Christian life is about so much more than emotion. Passionate, longing emotions are unsustainable in the long run. Just ask anyone who has been married for longer than 10 minutes whether or not those, those feelings last at that level of intensity forever. Feelings of longing, they come and go, and one day you'll feel totally fired up and you'll feel totally drained the next, and that is the way that life is. So I don't think that this, this psalm is meant to evoke to us that unless you are like dripping with, 
longing desire for God 24 hours a day that you're somehow doing it wrong. It's rather meant to point us to a deeper reality that we were created to experience God in such a way that our souls deep down do ultimately long for him, even if it's not always at the surface. So consider the life of David. Consider the actual moment in David's life that he was writing this psalm. Um, this was taking place when David was fleeing. He was running for his life. And this was this time when he was running for, for his life, he was fleeing from his son who had betrayed him and was attempting to kill him so that his son could become the king. And you thought that you had messed up family issues. David was out in the wilderness of Judea. He was in hiding from his son Absalom. And imagine what he is feeling right now in this time. He's alone, isolated, fearing for his life, asking the questions, what did I do wrong? Where did I go wrong in my relationship with my son? What about the promises of God? He said that I was always going to be on the throne. Like, what about now? I'm hiding in a desert. What about all of the faithfulness that I, my, my life that I've given to God? Surely this isn't my portion to be executed by my own son. The psalm was written in unimaginably painful circumstances. David had been betrayed and was in fear for his life. And it's in these circumstances that he writes one of the most beautiful poems in all of the psalms. Because in this poem, David turns back to God in relationship. He recenters himself. He locates himself in the heart of God. And regardless of what we face, locating ourselves in God, it grounds us even in difficult circumstances. That when everything else in our lives has been stripped away, the deepest longing is for God himself. And so David is able to say things like, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in this wilderness, in this desert. And then David turns back to the Lord and he recounts all of the good things that God has done. He thinks about years past being satisfied in God's presence. He says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and I've beheld your power and your glory. He reflects on who God has been in his life through the years. And then he goes on to say, because your love is better than love. Thanks, Tim. <laughs> okay, don't mind the fact that there was a fire in the corner just now. Um, We are all over the place this morning. (laughs) David says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. That David comes back to the love and the longing of God. Because the reason that David is able to to locate himself in sort of this place of longing and desire and yearning is because he has an understanding that before David ever longed for God, God longed for David. That before David ever loved God, God loved him. And no matter what we face, this fact is what will hold us secure. And this is the fact that will keep us even in our own wilderness of Judea seasons. And as over the top as David's language is in Psalm 63, there is no language that can sufficiently describe how passionately God longs for you. The entire story of the Bible is this lovesick God who stops at nothing to reach out to to his created people that he made for relationship with himself. 
that even when we sin against him, even when we turn our back against him, he sacrifices himself on the cross in our place for our sin, and then he draws us to, back to him. He says, no, I will take all of that upon myself, and I'm still going to keep loving you and drawing you. You see, you could never overstate the longing that's in God's heart. It is beyond words. In response to God's pursuit, uh, one of the ancient mystics, Catherine of Siena, she began her prayers like this. This is crazy. She said, O divine madman, crazed with love, drunk with love for us. Could you imagine like starting your 6 a.m. prayer time with a cup of coffee and just saying, ah, you know, divine crazy man, you're drunk with love for me. And yet this woman from the 14th century had a revelation of God's love that most of us are too embarrassed to even repeat. How else do you describe God's loving and longing pursuit of us? And so our prayers of longing and of desire are a response to his initiating longing and desire. We are a dim reflection of his heart towards us. And yet, if we're honest, we all so often live oblivious to this reality. Like it's right in front of us on the page, and it's all around us in the beauty of God's creation and just feeling the warmth of the sun and knowing that he, is, he wants to give all of himself to us, and yet we just live our lives blind to it. And the language of Psalm 63 invites us to look up and to behold the beauty of God's love for us. A few years ago, um, I went to the Grand Canyon with Carly, and uh, it would have been like on our list for years and years, and we finally decided to make it happen. It was right before we were going to have kids, so, you know, now is the time. And, um, and so we were driving from Flagstaff up to the south rim of the Grand Canyon, and uh, it was like twilight, you know. It was, it was getting to be just around sunset, and we were just like getting there as fast as we could so that we could catch sunset over the Grand Canyon. And we get out of the car, and I run to the lookout point, and I just stood there breathless, like taking it in, the beauty of the Grand Canyon. How many of you have been to the Grand Canyon in person? Okay, like a lot of us. Um, there was nothing that could have really prepared me. I had seen so many pictures and videos, but then I stood in front of that beautiful place and it took my breath away. I literally started to tear up as I looked at that view. Um, and after a few minutes of sort of taking it in, I, I turn around and I look and I see that there's this amphitheater with people all sitting facing the same view that I was looking at. And the majority of the crowd were actually just staring down at their phones the whole time. It was so stupid. <laughs> like, it made no sense. This was, the mo- this was like I was weeping, and I had no breath in my lungs, and people were checking Facebook and Instagram. And isn't that a parable for so much of our lives and for how our attention is taken up? How often do we miss the presence of God because we're distracted by all of the other junk? And this is why we need things like Psalm 63 to reorient our hearts over and over again to cultivate a deeper longing for God. In our world today, there are endless options available for us to distract ourselves. And one of the most important things that we must do as followers of Jesus is to constantly fend off numbness and boredom. Like that's, that's like your job as a 21st century Christian is to fend off numbness and boredom. Over the last year, many of us have run to all kinds of things to cope with the disorientation that is 2020. 
And as we are re-emerging and we're starting to kind of come back into the light, I think that we have a really important responsibility to bring all of that coping stuff with us up out into the light and to be open and honest with each other with the things that we have used to numb numb us during this time. And, and I want to say this with, with extreme, extreme clarity, as much as I can. Regardless of what things have been left to grow in your life or in your heart over the last 12 months especially, my prayer is that this church would be a place of safety and openness for you to be able to experience like healing, healing from those things. You don't have to let the things that have grown for a year become your destiny. We can leave those things in 2020 and we can walk in freedom today. And I want to assure you that this is a church that there's nothing that you can say that will scandalize us beyond what we, like we are prepared to walk with you no matter what, what this, this last year has been. You see, whatever it is that you, have, that you go to to take the edge off of a difficult day, that is likely the thing that Jesus wants to reorder in your life. And I have mine, and you have yours. That's the thing that tends to turn down the volume of God's voice in your life. And Jesus invites us to give those things over to him so that we might long for the right things. You want to know how I know? It's when, I, it's when I've had a hard day and I think to myself, man, I just want a cold IPA. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when that becomes the thing that I'm just like, this is the desire of my heart. And Jesus says, I want you to give that desire to me. And I want you to find that I'm even better than that. This is a long quote from uh, Pastor John Piper, but it's one I come back to over and over again, especially this year. In his book, A Hunger for God, he wrote, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. And when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. Jesus said some people hear the words of God and a desire for God is awakened in their hearts. But then as they go their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life. In another place, he said the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. The pleasures of this life and the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. They are gifts of God. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and gardening and reading and decorating and traveling and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. And all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. And I'm not trying to be heavy-handed here. I really think that we as Christians should be the people who are most capable of delighting in the gifts of God. And yet, in 21st century America, we live so rich 
And what we don't, what we often fail to recognize is that the, the wealth that we live with, the good gift that God give us, they have still this tendency to twist our hearts just a little bit. And that's why we need these psalms. You see, even the gifts that God gives can become substitutes for him. They become idols, or in the language of psychology today, attachments. And they hold us in captivity, and they limit us from experiencing the union that we were created for. And that's why we need disciplines or practices that can reorder our hearts and our desires, what God created for us to desire. In his book, You Are What You Love, I know it's a lot of quotes, but these are great books. You should read them. James K.A. Smith wrote this, Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision that is encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. It's about feeding the deep longings, the ones that are deep inside each of us, and resisting the pull of the shallow longings that weigh us down. John Mark Comer says it like this, your strongest desire is not your deepest desire. No one consciously sells their birthright for a bowl of stew, but we unconsciously do it all the time when we live for the shallow pleasures rather than feeding the deep longings of the soul. So how do we fuel a longing for God? I'm so glad you asked that question. There are so many practices that we could list here, things like solitude and silence and fasting that are really important. But for the sake of time, I want to say the best thing that you can do is to spend time with God in worship and prayer. That's simple. First, worship. I think that there is incredible formative power in simply singing love songs to Jesus. It's why we do, that's why we spend most of our time on a Sunday morning doing just that. It, the, the songs, they have a way of sticking in like our souls. I mean, have you ever noticed how music just has a way of kind of sticking in you? Every parent of a toddler can att- attest to that. Those songs, they get in you and they never leave. Ever. Don't, don't, Jeremy. <laughs> And so we've made singing worship one of the, um, one of the core family, uh, family discipleship practices that we do. Every single night before we go to bed, we, we read a couple books. We read a little bit of a Bible story. Some of those stories are not good right before bed. Um, and then we sing some worship for our kids. And, and we're doing it because we, we just know that as we, we sing these songs, that truth will begin to worm its way into their little hearts and hopefully stick there forever. Each morning, I want to encourage you, spend time singing to Jesus, like out loud. Like get in the shower and just belt it out, you know, if you can. Um, No one else is listening. Or during your commute, turn up the music all the way up and sing your heart out to Jesus on your way into the office. And watch how something as simple as singing worship to Jesus will draw up those deep longings for God in your heart. And then the second thing I want to say is to pray the Psalms. Like, that's the big idea of this whole series, and it's really my big idea today. Spend time each morning praying the Psalms. Don't just read them in your head. Like, allow them to become the language of your prayer life. So here's how I do that. Each morning I get up really early. 
Um, I have my coffee maker in my office where I spend time with the Lord, and it's, the coffee's already ground, the water's already in there. I wake up, I walk in, before I'm even coherent, I push the button, and it's the sign, oh, it's going to be okay. And, and, then, uh, and then I open my Bible, and I read one or two psalms very slowly. And when I'm reading it, I, I often read it out loud, and I'm looking for those, those little phrases, those single verses that kind of poke my soul. And it's God highlighting, hey, there's something on here that I want you to pay attention to. And whenever I feel that little poke in my heart, then I take, you know, two or three minutes, maybe four minutes, and I just pray those words over and over again. I, I change them up. I, just, I, I, I make them my own, and I invite the Spirit of God to do something with them in my heart. And then after I've prayed them for a few minutes, then I keep reading until the next phrase jumps out at me, and then I do the same thing over and over again. And let me tell you that after doing this day after day and year after year, there are phrases in the Psalms that have become core vocabulary for me. Like, I'm not the guy that has all of the psalms memorized or anything like that. I probably only have, like, Psalm 23 memorized, if I'm honest. But I have all of these phrases that have become my phrases that I repeat over and over to Jesus. In fact, just this morning while we were worshiping, I was standing up here in the front, and it was just a beautiful time. Show me your glory. And, and one of the key verses that has been very important to me all of my life has been Psalm 17, verse 15, where the psalmist says, As for me, I will behold your face in righteousness, and when I awake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. And it's like one of the core prayers in my life. As for me, I'm going to behold your face. I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to be satisfied with you. And it, and it like gets into my worship time. That's what happens as we give ourselves to the practice of praying the Psalms. The words become our words. Now, last year was a difficult one for all of us, probably, and it was difficult for me, too. And it was the first year that I think I finally understood some of the poems that are written in the Psalms about feeling abandoned or forsaken. And I was so, it was so helpful throughout the last year to have the language from the book to help me locate my own heart in difficult circumstances. And so as you develop this practice, even the most over-the-top language that David uses in the Psalms, it begins to rise to the surface in your own heart. It becomes more real in you. And you start to have the accent of the poet. It's in praying the Psalms that we embrace ourselves as a bundle of paradoxes. And we allow the Spirit of God to form the confusing mess of our emotions and desires. And he reorders them so that we might live free from the coping, the draw of all the lesser things. Because his promise for us is abundant life with him. Amen? So that's what we're going to do this week. We're just going to take some time each morning and pray the Psalms. All right, I'd like to invite Jace to come on up. I'm going to pray for us and then he's going to lead us into some ministry time. Would you stand with me, if you're able? Quick check-in. Um, anybody else feel anything else in their body during this time as, we, as, as I was preaching? Any of the healing? Sheila felt something? Okay. Awesome. Excellent. Let's pray. Oh, divine madman, drunk with love, crazed for, with love for us. Give us the revelation of your heart, Lord. Lead us in Jesus' name.